Anakrit is a visiting research fellow at University College London. Her research focuses on women in the military of Ukraine, veterans' reintegration into civilian life, and the gendered impacts of the war in Ukraine. Anna contributed to the development of programs and policies on the implementation of the Women, Peace and Security Agenda in Ukraine. She co-taught military sociology at the National University of the Kiev Mikhail Academy. Anna holds degrees from both the National University of Kiev Mikhail Academy and the University of Kassel in Germany. Welcome to the Silicon Curtain podcast. If you enjoy the material we create, then please do like and subscribe. It will help other people to discover the fantastic guests that we feature. And do, of course, please consider becoming a patron to support the work of the channel. Anna, I'm really delighted to welcome you. And this isn't a topic we've covered yet on the channel. Uh, good afternoon, Jonathan. Thank you very much for inviting me to your podcast. Now, I should say, normally you're uh, based in, in London, actually, for your research, but at the moment you are in Kiev. So please, you know, if the internet goes down or there's a break in the recording, uh, just explain to the audience there that that's why that might might be. Um, well, let's jump into the subject, because this is a very dynamic topic, isn't it? And the scale of women volunteers in the army has really changed you know, prior to uh, actually 2014, uh, it's changed, obviously, with the, uh, you know, with that uh, invasion of Crimea and the nine year, you know, eight year period for the full scale war. But it's also accelerated as well, hasn't it, since February last year? Yes, yes, absolutely. The number of women in the armed forces of Ukraine has increased since the last year. A lot. Um, yeah, so um, women in the military in Ukraine... Uh, seems to be a very new topic and unusual. Um, but technically, women were in the armed forces of Ukraine before this war started in 2013 and before it escalated last year. Uh, but the reasons for uh, women to be in the military were different back then. And now, of course, in 2014, after the occupation of Crimea and invasion of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk regions of Ukraine, uh, women volunteered to join the armed forces of Ukraine to defend Ukraine. Uh, protection was the main motivation, but not only. Some of them had personal motivations, um, more personal than just uh, than than the general uh, motivation to protect and fight back the aggression. And. Uh, since the and so it was the first wave 2014 and 2015 and then another wave of uh, women actively volunteering um to join armed forces of ukraine was uh, in february in march 2022 after the full-scale invasion of course um yeah and over this uh, almost 10 years the um we have we have, I think, almost five times more women officers in the armed forces of Ukraine and uh, two and five times more uh, women in the military service. But if we talk about the numbers, um, at the moment, according to the recent data, to the latest data, um, there are 60,000 of women in the armed forces of Ukraine and 42,000 of women are uh, military 
women on the military service. And if what it tells us is that a lot are not, uh, so yes, it is. It's more than in any other European army. It's even such large armies as French or Italian or UK armies. Uh, I cannot tell you about the, I cannot tell you what is the ratio of women and men at the moment, but before the invasion, we had approximately 17% of women on the military service and more than 20% women in general, which is also way higher than, for example, average in the NATO armies. And uh, it so must it, take, it must take time though for women to rise up the ranks uh, and it must depend on there being you know a large number of women in the lower ranks coming at the bottom uh, it must take years if not decades for them to reach the upper levels of the military structure so when you say they're officers are we talking here about sort of junior officer level or are we seeing more women go up into the sort of mid and higher positions it's a very good question it does take a lot of time indeed and there are obstacles uh, there were obstacles to that uh, because um not all military education was available for women some years ago uh, so um at the moment we have women starting from the lowest positions mainly and then uh, growing their career uh we do not have almost don't have women in the highest decision making uh, level positions at the moment but I hope that with having all the education military education open for women a few years ago I hope that and with with their current military service experience I hope that it will change with years. Is it also important uh, and I was going to come to this at the end but it seems sort of appropriate to tackle it now there is a similar process isn't there of women in politics being far more active, um, certainly since uh, the revolution of dignity, but also now with so many men on the front, uh, women are really fulfilling that sort of civil society role, a lot more are entering into politics. Is it important that there are more women in politics to then also drive change in attitudes and promotions within the military? Um, I don't know the results of like I don't know if they che checked it statistically, but uh, in general, yes, it is important because having more women in decision making uh, affects the decisions that are taken. This is a proven fact. Um, at the moment in Ukraine, we have twenty percent of uh, women um, deputies in the parliament. This is the highest percentage we ever had. And yes, women are very active in politics nowadays, and they are extremely active in civil society. And uh, their activity, their work, is uh, they make a great input to the resistance and defense force and to keeping the society going in these hard times. And, and uh, I mm, must sorry. say that, yes, having women, active women, also uh, supports promotion of integration of women into the military sector as well and um at what point though did women start taking up combat roles because of course at the moment there are women now on the front uh will come to political prisoners in a minute of military prisoners rather because there are women um who are being put on trial at the moment uh, as part of the other uh, as of defenders um but at what point and how much resistance was there to women uh, coming into frontline combat roles uh there was a certain resistance uh first of all at the beginning of this war 
it was not possible from a legal point of view. Um, and also, um, there was resistance from from the from the society, from the military men as well, because um, a combat roles are not traditional women's roles, and. Uh, because of different reasons, they were not uh, welcomed there by some people, not by everybody, but uh, some would say that um, it's, it's very dangerous. Others would say that it's very physically exhausting. So um, there, there were obstacles, but with the uh, beginning of the war, women joined also volunteer battalions, which within a year became were integrated uh, in the structures of defense and security, but in volunteer battalions, they occupied, um, they, um, some of them, they performed combat roles. And it was um, already the big argument to, to prove that women actually can do this and they are doing it and they are effective. So uh, it was a starting point to advocate for um, opening combat positions for women in Ukraine. And you talk there about the nature of the risks changing as women moved from some support roles uh, into combat roles. But even in support roles, there's a certain level of risk, isn't there? So if you're in, you know, sort of medic roles and you're on the front line, I mean, you're still exposed to some extreme dangers. You're still exposed to experiencing things that will induce physical and even mental trauma. But how do you think the risks have changed as this move into combat roles uh, came in? And what is the nature of, of the risks that women are now taking? Um, well, Ukraine is in war. So I think that uh, the risks are very high and very obvious. And this division of uh, into um, support roles and combat roles, um, maybe it... Well, in maybe in, in context, in a peaceful context, it would have different meaning. But being in the state of an active war, people who are occupying the so-called support roles, they are not sitting in the offices in Kiev. They are many of them are on the front line. Um, so it is also dangerous. And if we talk about, um, so it's dangerous for their life and their health. Um, and also talking about women, um, you saw what the Russian army is doing to women in the occupied territories. And uh, uh, from uh, what I read in the interviews with people who were um, in captivity, uh, military women are also exposed to the risks of conflict-related sexual violence. And there's a there's a well-known story, which I think you've commented on, which is um, uh, of the uh, combat medic uh, who was captured in prison for three months, uh, Yulia Payeska. Um, so what can we tell from those sort of personal testimonies of people who've actually been captured, held by the Russians? Um, what do we learn about their conditions and experience? We can learn that uh, their rights are not respected, and this is the softest way how I can put this. Um, if you look, um, if you look at the exchange of prisoners of war, um, Ukrainian prisoners of war who come back from Russian captivity, they are um, in, in critical condition often, and uh, this 
they got into this condition in the captivity. Uh, we know that uh, they face that they have been tortured, that they don't have enough of food, they don't have um, any healthcare services, um, they are being psychologically pressured. Um, we also know that cases of sexual conflict-related sexual violence are also happening there, but uh, unfortunately there are no many uh, statistical data or statements from survivors but this is very typical for this type of crime uh, it is rarely reported it is very underreported crime and people start talking about it years after the event happened and looking at what's going on at the moment so these uh, azov uh, defenders i think they i may be wrong here but from the i think they're from the uh, azov style um uh, sort of uh, resistance there. They're actually being put on trial, I think, in Moscow at this point. Uh, and there are women amongst those defenders. It is, of course, against the uh, Geneva Convention. So this, in essence, is a war crime. Um, are the experiences of people who've been in Russian captivity and then exchanged, are their experiences all being documented and in what level of detail does that have to happen in order for that evidence to be used in future uh, war crimes tribunals? There are special protocols how to um, record the statements of people who survived, whose rights were violated, who survived this, uh, who come back from captivity as well. And yes, uh, they, they are, uh, their statements are being recorded. Unfortunately, I don't work in the prosecutor's office i i cannot tell him how like what how they do it technically but i know that it is being done of course yes and and, and that so that's run by the government i mean there are a lot of private organizations also gathering people's testimony especially amongst civilians but in case of the military personnel is that primarily being done by the by the government Yes, and in case, if we talk about conflict-related sexual violence, it is also done by uh, civil society organizations may do this, but it is important that the government does it. Hmm. And government yeah. is doing this, of course. And um, another government initiative, which I think is quite an interesting one that you've mentioned in your article, and we, we will put uh, links to that article in the uh, description of this video so people can find it, but the National Defenders Day was renamed in 2021. Is this a strong signal that attitudes are changing um, and that uh, women combatants and women veterans are now hopefully being considered uh, at the same level uh, as their male colleagues? Or is there still some way to go in changing these attitudes? Yeah, it, it was um, several years ago they did change the name of the National Defenders Day to the National Day of Women and Men Defenders. Um, and it's a, well, it's a, um, it is a very important uh, signal, let's say, from the perspective of how we present our armed forces of Ukraine, how we represent our army, who are those who us uh, during the war and they highlight that there are women there and uh, they um, except for the name of the day 
and they also the, the government, the uh, military of defense or the Ministry of Defense, for example, they uh, use images of women also uh, in the military to uh, portray how how our army looks like. So it's these are female and male faces, uh, of course, and. Uh, the attitude towards women uh, is in the army is changing. Um, talking about the the day of, of uh, men and women defenders, over the last year I've heard many people talking that we should pray about boys and girls who are defending us, and it's it's not part of the research, but I see I hear it in in a daily life in a in a conversation with, with people. I know, so it's it's already the, the recognized fact. But if we talk about the numbers and research, so in two thousand eighteen, um, there was a survey, all national survey of adult population of Ukraine, and uh, one of the questions was if uh, you think that women and men should have equal rights in the armed forces of Ukraine, and fifty three percent. And, uh, of respondents said that yes and it was already fifth year of the war but still only half of people thought that they should have equal rights uh, last year uh, they they asked the same question and 80 percent of people said that yes uh, we think that women and men should have equal rights and i think it's a very good um, um, change uh, because women are being seen and recognized in the military um Yes, but on the other hand, I cannot, from these uh, results and from these changes, we hardly can say something about what is waiting for us in the future. Because um, during the war, during the full-scale war, when our lives are in danger, for example, today we already had uh, an attack, we already had to hide in the bomb shelter. Um, and it's like this every day. So having people who are defending you, you feel gratitude and you respect them um, although experience of other countries after the war shows that um, women are asked to come back to more traditional women's roles after the war if this will be the case of Ukraine in Ukraine I cannot say uh, we we often discuss it with my colleagues, and we think that it it won't be possible to uh, to just to forget this experience. Uh, I don't think that uh, there will be a major rollback because we already have uh, lots of uh, laws changed that are supportive uh, towards integrating women in, into the military sector. Integrating women into the military sector is part of the national development agenda and national international commitments. We have a national action plan on implementation of uh, UN Security Council Resolution 1325, which also focuses, part of it focuses on the women in the military. And also we have women who have this military experience and we have women who want to develop their career in the military sector. Um, yes, and we have uh, many uh, citizens of Ukraine who are um, recognizing women in the military and I hope are grateful to them. So I think that these changes that we're seeing now uh, will remain. And of course, the, the, you spoke of some examples from history and of course, two big ones would be uh, Britain after the First and Second World War and during those wars, women pray, played um, 
you know, much bigger roles in wartime than they did in peacetime. Uh, in the First World War, working in, you know, armaments factories and so on. And then in the Second World War, driving buses, doing jobs that were traditionally, the, the you know, the preserve of men. And then straight after the war, there was a reversion, uh, almost back to attitudes. Well, there was, there was obviously social change and so on, but in terms of gender roles in the workplace, there was a big regression. But at that point, there were very few women in politics. So do you think that's the big change here, is that there's so many, many more women involved in political decision-making, uh, in parliament and civil society, and of course, journalism. Go back to Second World War, post-war Britain, there were relatively few women uh, in, 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 in journalism at that point. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree with you. Um, the society after the First World War, after the Second World War and the modern society are very different ones. It, even if, if we look at the gender rights and women's rights and recognition of the importance of uh, gender equality and promotion of women's rights. So, uh, and also because there are more women in the um, decision-making level, um, at, at national decision-making level, and in civil society and in media, yes. And actually the whole, whole process of um, promoting women's rights in the defense sector was, uh, was a joint effort of different stakeholders civil society and government and women in the military and veterans. So uh, we already have this experience. And I think that, yes, uh, because of this, because of many different factors, um, I don't think that the history, like example of, of uh, First World War or Second World War will repeat. I hope not. And of course, if we go back, uh, you know, a couple of decades, um, Ukraine, essentially similar to, uh, you know, other, other many other countries that have emerged from uh, the Soviet sphere, um, quite a patriarchal society traditionally. Um, but now we see extremely strong uh, female characters um, in, in a whole range. And especially if we consider, you know, the recent uh, awarding of the Nobel Prize for the center of um, civic liberties. Um, so incredibly strong sort of female figureheads and academia and so on. Are paternal or paternalistic values being challenged, you know, right across society? You know, even let's say who performs what role in the home, cooking, cooking washing up, doing that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm going to say this having, you know, had, had some interesting discussions with, because uh, I live in, in Oxford and then we have lots and lots of refugee families here. And, you know, quite lively discussions because they're living in, um, you know, local families and they're observing, you know, what the husbands do, what the women do, and then debating it. So how do you feel this is all going to play out, um, you know, if you take into consideration traditional uh, paternal values? I think they they will change. But um, because of, again, because of very different factors, um, because, uh, for example, now we have millions of women with children living outside of Ukraine, learning to perform all the roles. Unfortunately, they have to perform female and male roles because they have to take care of their family and they, they are the only one adult in the family at the moment. And the same we can say about men who are staying in Ukraine because 
if their family left, now they have to perform the male role, but they have to take care of themselves and, and cook food and, and clean and, and do everything and communicate with uh, relatives who are left here, which is also very usually um, um, women's responsibility to maintain these networks with, with family and friends. Um, and uh, um, sorry I, uh, about the roles but the the complicated part here is that um sometimes uh, i hear from from western uh, maybe journal journalists as well that if women go to the war to show to prove that they have a right to do it and it's not like it's not their motivation at all and in fact many women uh, who are at war they maybe don't even consider themselves to be feminists. They are not living within this division, feminists, not feminists. And uh, I know some of them, some of them are public figures. They have very traditional views about the gender roles and them being in the military does not um, mean anything for them. They, it doesn't change them in their opinion as a woman and their expectation from men so it's it's a it's a more complicated reality which uh, which is very interesting and as a researcher i could say that it, it's worth researching uh, but yes i think that um, because of many different factors because of the new experience because uh, because we have media and we have government who highlights it again and again about the gender equality and because people are leaving these experiences now suddenly they they had to do this they had to uh, try different gender roles because because of the critical situation we're living in and has your research uncovered some of these motivations or is this an area for future research? Because, you know, reading articles, doing interviews with people, you get a sense of a huge range of different reasons. And obviously the sense of just wanting to survive and protect your country and your family and your land, that that's a, quite an obvious one. But there are other people who've actually lost husbands, children, parents, uh, you know, this this can also be a motivation in some cases to join the military. Yes, in some cases, this is what I mentioned at the beginning, that some uh, women who join the military, they have very personal reasons. Uh, um, some of them can be following a family member or a partner. Um, they go to the war together. But some of them can join the military after losing a family member because of this war or family members um yes um th th this is what what i know but um also um if we look at what is hap what was happening at the occupied territories and what is still happening we just know we don't know um about these territories um a lot now um women don't have rights there uh, nobody has rights to the occupied territories um women face extreme risks of conflict related sexual violence uh, their husbands and their male um, relatives or neighbors they also face extreme risks for their life and health um 
And if we look at the occupied territories uh, that were occupied since 2013, I cannot say there were there were uh, human rights or women's rights or there was an opportunity to defend their rights. So basically life under occupation, if you don't fight back the occupation and Russian aggression, you risk to end up under occupation and being under occupation means having no rights in the best case scenario and no life in the worst case scenario. So this is, uh, I think, one of the big motivations at the moment for many people. We know that Russian propaganda is intense in those occupied territories. Um, and does this influence, you know, the number of women that sort of sign up? Uh, are, is it higher in any areas of Ukraine or is it fairly evenly spread? Uh, you know, the numbers of women or the percentage of women that sign up, um, you know, right across the unoccupied territories. I, I cannot tell you at the moment, we don't have this data, it's not available, unfortunately. The data we have is very scarce and very general. It's about the general representation of women in, in the army. Um, but um, I'm trying to think about the, the data we had before. Um, I cannot say that uh, there were more people from from the territories adjacent to the occupied territories. They are from all over Ukraine. There were lots of from many people from Western Ukraine, but there were also from Eastern Ukraine. So it's not that uh, the, I, I don't think that there are the being close to the occupied territories is one of the main reasons. And you mentioned um, the Ministry of Defence using now very prominently in its sort of recruitment materials and social media posts using, uh, you know, female uh, service service people in those images. Um, that, of course, creates a great impression of, of equality. Um, but in reality, is that what women are experiencing day-to-day uh, -day with their male colleagues or is there still some work to be done to create, you know, genuine uh, sort of equality uh, on the front line in reality? I think uh, it's like in, in the society in general and probably in every society in general. Um, women do think in the military that there are, there is still place for improvement. But if you ask, um, not everybody, but uh, sometimes men would say that uh, uh, women already have all the rights in Ukraine. We don't have problems with gender equality, and uh, something like this can can be said uh, towards women in the military. But from my interviews with women in the military, yes, they uh, um, they do voice that um, many changes have happened, but there is still place for further work. And we know in the civilian workplace, I mean, this is true um, in the UK and, and most societies that sometimes to get sort of promotions and to get into senior roles, women have to go, you know, the extra mile uh, to prove their capability, to prove their skills and their knowledge, um, go perhaps further than the male colleagues. We know that this can potentially happen in, in minorities as well. Um, do you think this is also the case in the military that to, to get, as you say, into those higher levels, those leadership levels, you have to really strive that little bit harder uh, as a woman? 
uh, women in the military, yes, they say this, that, uh, well, some of them voice that they have difficulties with professional development within the military, that growing professionally, um, I mean, in the ranks, um, sometimes is complicated for them, most likely because they are women. And we also see that in some cases, um, you will have both partners in the military. I mean, what um, I think it's probably a fairly obvious uh, answer, but what kind of challenges does it create when you have both, um, you know, the, the male and the female of a, of a family unit in the military? And sometimes they may even have have children, which would then need to be looked after. Uh, do we know whether this is quite sort of prevalent or is this quite an unusual uh, sort of circumstance? Well, th there are families like this. There are people like this, of course. And um, a child care in the family of military, in the military family is, uh, from the policy perspective, is a, and from the perspective of reality, is a bit complicated thing. And um, until recently, if uh, the reality was that if both spouses or partners are in the military and they have a child, then um, woman would spend more time with child and man would continue his career. Uh, to some extent, if we look at the policies only, it was probably linked to the fact that in case they have a child, only woman could take a maternity leave, um, father in the military couldn't take paternity leave, but it has been changed two years ago, two years or one year ago, I don't remember, I think two years ago, in the end of 2021. And now if in if uh, men and women are both, a, a, if, uh, female, if two partners are in the military and um, they have a child, then they can choose who will take care of a child, which is a, very big change uh, for um... you've also written extensively i know this is this is a developing area of research about the rehabilitation of service people and of course we know that people many people are already coming back with physical traumas um and it would be interesting to sort of hear you know what needs to be done more to to support them uh but also there are going to be a lot of people coming back with uh, mental health problems mental trauma and, you know, I expect that that would be experienced by both men and, and women equally. This is an area which still needs a lot of work, isn't it, to create that infrastructure to support people with uh, mental health issues. Yes, um, it needs a lot of uh, effort and infrastructure, but also we have Ministry of Veteran Affairs, we have Veteran Fund, we have civil society organizations, um we have i think some international organizations working in this area the work started not this year it started in 2015 i think uh, but the number of veterans back at that time and number of veterans now and number of veterans that we will have uh will be different so uh yes it's a it's a growing and constantly developing area and uh, again it 
a lot of resources and a lot of effort is required to provide this assistance and to um, establish the, this system in, in order that it's functional in, in, in a way that it's helpful. Because is, uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's a rather new reality for, you, for Ukraine and for Ukrainians and for Ukrainian institutions and people, because this is, uh, yeah, we didn't have, it, it's the, the war started in 2014, but before that we, we were living in a peaceful society. And there probably, there probably isn't a historical precedent for the number of active female service personnel who are going to be coming back with both physical and especially mental trauma. Um, that, to an extent, is, is not an experience other countries would have had to go through. Uh, even somewhere like Israel, where you have a lot of uh, females in the military, they're not dealing with the sort of scale of casualties that we're going to see here and the scale of, of trauma. Do you think that, uh, and this might you know, be quite an ill-informed question, but are women going to have the same challenges as men or are men perhaps more at risk from, say, post-traumatic stress disorder because they're perhaps maybe less likely to discuss mental health problems. There's maybe more of a taboo around discussing it, whereas women potentially can be more communicative or have a, a richer network of contacts. Or do you think that's too simplistic a way of looking at the problem? Uh, I think that uh, this is a very complicated. It is difficult to to predict who will have more severe consequences of uh, being at war and being in the military during the wartime. Um, well, at the moment, I well, we don't know the it's severity of of the consequences, for example, depends on the role in the in the military. Um, and there probably we have more men, it's because we have more men in the army. And uh, so more men will be coming back from, there will be more men with uh, physical and psychological uh, consequences of, of participating, of, of fighting at war. Um, but, um, and also men tend to speak less about their experience about how they uh, this this military civil, transition from military to civil civilian life uh, but from our previous experience um, before 2022 it was not easy for women as well but because of different reasons first of all um, a female veteran in the society is a very new role and very unusual so not everybody would recognize this woman as a and her status they would have a more suspicious attitude towards her why you were fine did you do this is it true why did you do that um we didn't ask you to do that or things like this which is very very rude and very, very um awful actually uh, I think it it will change now th this kind of attitudes from the from some people in the society, but also uh, because there are less women than men veterans, they have um, more challenges with finding uh, the community for them. For example, before uh, and they all many of them don't live in the big cities where the services for veterans are available. So 
So basically it will be one woman in one village, one woman in another town, in another city. And it's, it's, uh, and Ukraine is a very big country. So they, when they come back to their hometowns, uh, it, it is very difficult to maintain this communication in person. And another uh, challenge with um, reintegration, there are lots of challenges, but just those that are on surface that are very obvious and that we, uh, or some of those that we researched is that when coming back from war, it's related again to the attitudes. Women are more expected to be women Yes, they had this military experience, they were at war, um, their family and their community may be grateful to them, they recognize it, they, they understand this, but also they know that now it's time to take care of their children or get married and take care of their husband. And uh, these expectations uh, from women, veterans, as from women, they, they don't disappear, whereas from um, men, uh, there are not that many um, expectations related to taking care of a family in an emotional way, for example. He, he, he doesn't have to be perfect father again because, he, because everybody understands that he was at war and he saw horrible things and he survived and experienced horrible things. Whereas women tend to say that they feel this pressure from the society to, to be uh, normal civilian women again. And of course, if you take something like, you know, it could be Vietnam, Korean War, even the Second World War, returning men are returning to a civilian society. We know that civilian society tends to have a less of an understanding of what war is. Um, you know, it can even be more, you know, nationalistic, whereas people coming back from war tend to, you know, not want to boast about it or even talk about it uh, that much. But here you've got this unique situation where there will be a huge quantity of women. There'll be a lot of people who will have come under bombardment. So the pop amongst the population in general, there'll be a much acuter understanding of what war means and less glorification of it. I mean, do you think in some ways that's going to help uh, in the post-war environment? To be honest, this is a very complicated question because I am part of, of this and I... Uh... Um, everybody has experience of war in Ukraine, but not everybody's experience, well, people have very different experience of war. And I am afraid that on the one hand, probably, um, yes, we, we do understand this reality and it unites us. But on the other hand, I think that um, there may be uh, a division between uh, those who lost family members and those who didn't, those who were in the occupation, those who were not, um, those who left and those who stayed, and um, those who were fighting and those who were not fighting. And um, at the moment, I, I cannot say um, how, how it will be after the end of the war. And there's a lot of, of change that's going to happen. I mean, this is this is pretty much sort of the last era of questioning. There's going to have to be a lot of change in adaptation, isn't there? Both in legislation to support, uh, as you said, the support for people with traumas. Um, mobility access is going to have to change because I understand that in many cities there is minimal uh, access there. But another really significant pressure 
is that, you know, in interviewing people who've been on the front line and seeing lots of sort of video footage, I can see that Russian and Ukrainian are sort of interchangeable as languages. And, you know, for a point of practicality, uh, you can you can hear both sort of going on all the time. But there is a lot of pressure now, isn't there, for people to and, and quite understandable pressure for people to really start, you know, um, improving their Ukrainian language and to use much more Ukrainian language in civil society. Do you think this is going to place additional pressure on both female and male veterans returning from the front, all these sort of social changes that are going on? Uh, I don't think that the language will be a pressure. Ukrainians are bilingual and uh, everybody speaks, well, everybody understands definitely definitely understands uh, Ukrainian. Maybe some people uh, don't have uh, much practice with Ukrainian, but many, many people are shifting to Ukrainian, um, even though sometimes they say it's psychologically um, difficult when you're a 60-year-old woman and you feel that you might, uh, well, it's, it's unusual for some uh, people, but it's amazing how they how they do this uh everybody in ukraine speaks ukrainian and understands ukrainian they may feel that they haven't used it with family for a while but uh, i don't think it will be a pressure and also there are um, there is this uh, level of respect and trust and recognition of um people who are fighting at war and veterans um yeah i don't think they will be impressed with the language after this and my last question is um is the legislature is the government the parliament keeping up uh with you know the changes to legislation and laws required to support veterans or is there still a lot of work that needs to be done uh you know on that sort of legal and governmental level i think they are keeping up as much as they can uh they're Honestly, there's always, always something can be done additionally, but they are changing. The government works during the, the war and the Ministry of Veteran Affairs also works. Um, obviously that everybody works under extreme pressure and uh, lack of resources, human resources, including but uh, they are changing, uh, they are adopting to the new uh, challenges, and I believe that they will continue doing so. Well, Anna, your research is absolutely fascinating. I know you've got sort of years of, of material uh, to, to, to re-research uh, after this war finishes, and hopefully that is sooner. Um, but yeah, I'll read your articles with great interest, and I know the audience will appreciate your, your insights as well. Um, so all I've got to say is thank you so much. Slava Ukraini. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I hope uh, your um, audience will enjoy this video.